1208. Jeff Wagner, glad to have you with us. As Eric was just saying, the Packers are having their press conference uh, to introduce the new general manager, Brian Gutekunst, to the world, and we will carry that. Again, it's scheduled to start at 1 o'clock. Before that, three big things. Let us get started. All right, I have a confession to make. I did not watch the Golden Globes yesterday. Um, I, I've, I've seen summaries of it. I have seen clips, but I was I was doing other things yesterday, rather including. You want to feel old? Yesterday, yesterday afternoon, um, my wife and I took a couple of her grandkids bowling. I have not been bowling in probably thirty years. It was actually a lot of fun, except and Gru is producing the show today. This you want to feel old? I am sore today. And I, I woke up and I think, why am I so sore? Well, it's 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 bowling. It's my shoulder. It's you know my my upper thighs and stuff from like that that motion, which I and I'm like my gosh, bowling is doing me in now. But we had a lot of fun. I, I think maybe we'd do it again. But I really I'm just kind of like feeling that. The other thing that will make you feel old today uh, today, if Elvis Presley would have lived, he would have been 83. Elvis Presley would have been 83. He's been gone for 40 years. He died in 1977. Wow. I mean, it it doesn't seem like it's that long ago. But in any event, I, I was doing other stuff instead of watching the Golden Globes. Part of the thing about the Golden Globes, some of the stuff that wins, who, who has seen this? I mean, the TV show that won the Golden Globes, um, they, one was The Handmaid's Tale, which is based on a kind of weird book from 1985. That show's only on Hulu, so you have to have Hulu to watch that. The other one that... One awards was the marvelous something or other, uh, another show that I had just never seen before because it unless you watch like Amazon, the streaming service, you you won't see that either. It's kind of like wow, you know, we're we're recognizing all these different TV shows. The marvelous Mrs. Maisel, never seen that. An Amazon series that includes prizes. Okay, well, all right, let, let's find these obscure things that nobody's seen, and then let's kind of recognize them. But the story, of course, from the Golden Globes, it wasn't just the women wearing black to, you know, signify their solidarity with ending the, the casting couch, but it was the speech given by Nicolay High School attendee. You know, Nicolay High School, uh, Oprah Winfrey went to Nicolay for one year. Um, didn't graduate from Nicolay, went somewhere else after that. But she went to Nicolay for one year. She gives a, a speech, which was kind of interesting. She was recognized at the Golden Globes last night. She was given the, the Cecil B. DeMille Award. Now, interestingly enough, as we talk about victimization of women, that's the same award that the Golden Globe people gave to Woody Allen three years ago. So Oprah Winfrey wins the same award that Woody Allen receives. And, of course, everybody knows about Woody Allen's, well, should we say, checkered past. Oprah Winfrey gives a speech that brings down the, the house where she... I don't know, described as as inspirational and uh, appropriately thematic. It was kind of interesting to listen to some of it because, like, some of the things she was saying, I I was sitting there as I was watching the replay replay of it. I'm thinking, who is she talking to? For example, she says, 
I would like to thank the Hollywood Foreign Press Association because we all know the press is under siege these days. But we also know that it is the, now listen to this, insatiable dedication to uncovering the absolute truth that keeps us from turning a blind eye to corruption and injustice, to tyrants and victims and secrets and lies. I want to say I value the press more than ever before as we try to navigate these complicated times. Who is she talking to? This, I mean, Hollywood and, for example, the Harvey Weinstein and the casting couch and stuff, this was known to everybody, including the press. And it was allowed to be swept under the rug until finally the New York Times runs that story a couple months ago. But this went on for years and years. We're applauding the press for its, its insatiable dedication to uncovering the absolute truth. I mean, that's just absolutely crazy in this kind of revisionist types of things. But anyhow, she goes on and she talks about, you know, other people who were trailblazers in their own right. And, you know, she gets a gets a good round of applause for it. Here's what she finishes up by saying. She says, in my career. What I've always I've always tried to do my best, um, whether on television or on film. And that is to say something about how men and women really behaved. To say we experience shame, how we love and how we rage, um, how we fail, how we retreat, persevere, how we overcome. I've interviewed and portrayed people who withstood some of the ugliest things life can throw at you. But the one quality all of them seem to share is the ability to maintain hope or pride um, of mourning even during the darkest nights. So I want all the girls watching here and now to know that a new day is on the horizon. And when that new day finally dawns, it will be because of a lot of the magnificent women, many of whom are right here in this room tonight, and some pretty phenomenal men fighting hard to make sure that they become leaders who take us to a time when nobody has to ever say, me too, again. And she says, thank you, and gets a big roar, saying, okay, this is it. Us, the Hollywood elite, those of us who are in this room, we're going to turn around this country and we're going to end the sexual harassment and we're going to work with the press uh despite the fact that like i say a lot of the sexual harassment in hollywood was a known secret that everybody looked the other way for years and years on okay so after this speech um the word starts circulating oprah winfrey oprah winfrey um for president would she seriously consider running should could she turn this around um, people are gushing about the speech. It was more of an exaltation. She knows how to deliver it. She's really e- emotional. And um, people saying, well, all right, maybe this is Oprah's time. The reports are out there now saying, all right, from her uh, um, longtime boyfriend saying, yeah, she, she, she would consider running for president. So let's tee this up. It's big story number one, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. I freely admit, I never thought, I never thought a reality TV star like Donald Trump had a chance of being president. I didn't think the people of Minnesota were serious about electing a former wrestler to the position of governor. But, you know, he won. Arnold Schwarzenegger was the governor of California for a while. 414-799-1620 is Oprah Winfrey the answer to the country's problems. Would you like to see her run for president? Could she win as president? For Could she win the presidency? And I guess maybe the thinking is if President Trump could win, perhaps anybody could. But is this really what we want for our country moving forward? 414-799-1620. I will tell you where I come down on this, and we will discuss next 
Oprah for president. Um, I guarantee you in the next two or three days, there's going to be some poll out there done by CNN or someone like that, and it's going to show 70% of the people in this country would vote for Oprah Winfrey. Really? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. 1216, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. This is big story number one. 1219. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Oprah's not the answer I'm looking for, but she probably wouldn't forget to come to Wisconsin. Uh, Our text line exploding. Let's see. Um, I wouldn't vote for anyone who called Obama the black messiah. Hmm. Oh, my God, no. Facepalm. All right, here's Mitch has an interesting one. What is it with this obsession with celebrity? Obama came into office smart, arrogant, and unprepared. Trump came in not so smart, arrogant, and unprepared. Oprah would come in smart with some humility and unprepared. Is it too much to ask that we get a leader who is prepared? You know, that's a really interesting point because the reality is when you – Barack Obama, and I understand he was beloved, but I have argued this before. He was a product of his time. He was a creature of this certain event. People were tired of the Iraq War. Um, They were tired of George Bush. I think anybody who could have gotten uh, any Democrat was going to win that year. I think John McCain had no chance of winning when he ran that election. Um, People were just ready for a change, as happens. And here comes Barack Obama, who, uh, again, you know, he had this magnetism. He had this appeal. But he was grossly unprepared to be the president of the United States. And yet he wins because we fall in love with celebrities. Donald Trump was a different kind of celebrity, but yet we fall in love with that. At some point in time, are we going to recognize that that maybe we really want to find people who are prepared to do the job? 414-799-1620. All right. Is Oprah the answer? Let's see. Uh, let's talk to Nancy in Milwaukee. Nancy, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi. Um, you asked if Oprah could win, and I think she could definitely win because I think the appeal of Trump and Oprah is there's some of, they are some of the greatest Americans we have. You know, like, if you really study Trump, he's deeper than he actually seems. Like, if you read his books, and she also is, like, an excellent human being. So I feel like, yeah, she could totally win. Do you do we want more, though, than, than excellent human beings? Do we want people who have have worked in in politics and have an understanding of world affairs and have a a knowledge of economics and the financial markets? Or do we want somebody who we think is an outstanding person because we've seen them on TV or in the movies for years? Well, you know, actually, yeah, that's another interesting thing about this. Um, What I think is that in 2008, I was very frightened of the way the politics, you know, was going. I was very frightened of the inaction and so what i'm what appeals to me about trump is action you know like these politicians even with trump in office they they're very interesting in how they do nothing you know like they're getting paid to do nothing and that really bothers me especially with north korea and then all these giant issues and the isis thing last year was was really an enormous issue you know like i i think oprah and trump have shown that they act you know so it's it, it trump's you know, like this idea of politician, uh, you know, experience, in my opinion. So. Okay, well, I, I guess, I mean, thanks. I guess I, I, I mean, I think part of the question is, it's not just will somebody act. It's a question of what, what they are they going to do, you know, when th- they act. And 
one of the things that I admit drives me crazy nowadays is is we we are obsessed with this cult of celebrity. Look, I, I don't know Oprah Winfrey. Nobody knows Oprah Winfrey. I mean, except you know people close to her. Maybe you see that this this image that she puts out on on TV, you know, and on her TV shows and stuff. But we all know if we haven't learned anything, we we know that these images of people and how they appear on TV isn't necessarily who they really are. Tiger Woods, classic example of that. All right, you know, Tiger Woods, all oh, this clean-cut guy, everybody's going to love him. Well, it turns out Tiger Woods, major league sleaze. Some people don't care about that. You know, other people do. Now, I'm not saying that Oprah Winfrey has a, a Tiger Woods sort of thing, but I, I am saying that just because you see somebody on television doing a television show, developing their persona doesn't necessarily mean that they are ready to be the leader of the free world. One of the objections I had to Donald Trump all along is, candidly, I, I thought his personality and the true Trump really did kind of come through on on like the, the shows he did, The Apprentice and The Celebrity Apprentice. I never liked them. I didn't like him. I found him to be obnoxious and arrogant, um, at least in his case. He, he was a businessman who had a knowledge of the, the economy. You know, he was a developer. I mean, he did have a lot of success in the private sector. Oprah Winfrey is, is a, you know, she's, she's a TV star and a movie star. And she's got, you know, the, I mean, I'm not going to say that she's not a businesswoman because she's got this huge empire built around her. But, I mean, I don't care whether it's Trump or whether it's Oprah Winfrey or whether it's Jesse the Body Ventura or whether it's Arnold Schwarzenegger. Have we really gotten to a point where it's just, it's this celebrity. We're so obsessed with the cult of celebrity that we're going to elect you know, anybody who, well, they seem like a nice person, or I like the Celebrity Apprentice, or, gee, I was, was watching Oprah's TV show, or maybe I went to see it taped one time when they were still doing it in Chicago. Vincent, in Northwest on the Northwest Side. Vincent, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Uh, Happy New Year, Jim. Same to you, sir. Uh, the fact is, Oprah is not qualified to be president. We saw the fiasco in Minnesota with Jesse the Body Ventura right. you know, when they elected him uh, governor. It, it, it was a disaster. We see that we see the dog and pony show that's going on in, in our nation today with the presidency. Uh, the, the, the fact is, you know, we deserve more than someone that's been on TV or yeah. someone who's had a baseball or someone who shot a basketball. We deserve in this country someone more in order to, to run this country. And we need somebody that, that knows what they need to do. I, I'm not going to a guy just because I like him and so I'm on television to, to, to be my dentist or my doctor. So I, I, right. I, I want somebody that is qualified to do the job because this country deserves it. Right, and has been involved in, in policy making yes. for years and, and knows and knows their, their way around these things. Now, thanks to Colvin. And look, before anybody sends me notes, well, well you're a Reaganite. What, what do you say about Ronald Reagan? Okay, well, let's back up for a second. All right, yes, Ronald Reagan was a movie star, and yes, Ronald Reagan was on TV. But, but if you trace the history of Ronald Reagan before he was elected president in 1980, what you saw is about a 20 plus year period where he started phasing out of being the movie star, the TV star. Um, he was doing political speeches. You know, he was, 
you know, he was in Republican politics and an active political player, you know, going back to the 50s and certainly in the early 1960s. And then he was a two-term governor of California. So, yeah, I mean, he started out and maybe gained some fame, maybe some notoriety because of the TV and the movies. I, I accept that. But before he became president, you had 20 years serving as a governor, you know, and, and again, doing policy positions. And, I mean, he was he was in politics. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a newcomer, but at the same time, this idea that, oh, well, they, they gave a good speech at the Golden Globes Award, so this means, here, this is who we want to have as president. Really? I mean, really? And, again, I think that that's one of the most amazing things about the whole – I don't think Donald Trump wins if he runs against anybody other than Hillary Clinton. I've made that argument before, but I can see that his celebrity status ended up helping him. Regardless, though, of whether you think President Trump is doing a good job or whether he's doing a bad job, maybe some of these lessons are maybe the country would be better off if we didn't constantly get starstruck. Oh, Barack Obama is such a wonderful man and he's going to be transform- transformational when the guy has spent really he's a community organizer who's hung out for a little bit in the state Senate in Illinois and was a U.S. senator for a cup of coffee. Maybe if you have somebody who really understands how the process would work instead of us being so constantly starstruck, regardless of who it might be, you know, maybe maybe we wouldn't have some of the problems that we have now. Oprah for president. Give Oprah for president. Give me strength. All right. That's big story. Number one. Big story. Number two is coming up. It is out of Green Bay. And then after that, the president of the United States is essentially saying, don't believe what you read. I'm not nuts. We'll talk about that as well. It's 1228. This is Jeff Wagner. 1235. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. A lot of people want to weigh in on Oprah for president. Oprah has no business running for president. She has no experience to run a country. It's becoming a popularity contest, and this makes Americans look foolish. The the movie Idiocracy is really uh, is really becoming a reality. That's from Leanne. I believe that's another one. I believe Michelle Obama is a much stronger candidate if the Democrats want a minority female. Huh. Uh, let's see. Bill from Burlington says, will everybody get a car if Oprah is president? Uh, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. Well, um, maybe. I don't know. I tell you, we are celebrity obsessed. And I say that on the right. I say it on the left. And maybe the last, quite candidly, the last thing, though, I think that we need telling us how to run this country is, I don't know, the Hollywood elite that was sitting in that room at the Golden Globe ceremony yesterday. All right. Big story number two. Um, it was last Monday, the Packers announcing that, or maybe last Tuesday, the story was breaking that Ted Thompson would not be coming back as general manager. He was kicked upstairs or kicked to the curb, depending on how you want to look at, at it. The Packers apparently were trying to at least interview a couple outside candidates, but uh, they had some very strong internal candidates coming off a 7-9 and nine season. And uh, in about 25 minutes, they'll be having a press conference where they announce the new general manager of the Packers is going to be um, one of their executives who's been involved in scouting for years and years, a disciple of Ron Wolf. His name is Brian Gudakunst. Uh, don't look at how you spell it. It's pronounced Gouda like the cheese and then Kuntz like the former Packers linebacker George Kuntz with an S-T on the end. Gouda Kunst, you will be correct. Interestingly, the Packers are also announcing sort of a management 
structural change. Ted Thompson reported to Mark Murphy, who was the president, and Ted Thompson, other people reported to Ted Thompson. What they've done now, I I think, and and they had to do this. It makes sense to me. They did this um, in order to keep some senior people happy. Russ Ball, who is the finance guy, he's the guy that negotiates all the contracts and stuff. He wanted to be the general manager. He didn't get that job. Presumably, though, he's, he's getting a new title. Presumably, that has more money. He will not report to the general manager. He reports directly to Mark Murphy, the president. Um, Mike McCarthy, the head coach, who reported to the general manager. Now he will report directly to Mark Murphy and the general manager, Brian uh, Gudakunst, he will also report to Murphy. He's going to be responsible for like coming up with the talent, um, but presumably he's not going to be McCarthy's boss. I don't know who ultimately has the authority to fire McCarthy. My guess is under the structure, it would be the president, Mark Murphy. So you had to do these various things. So they've aligned the, the structure a little bit. But the big question is, the Packers make the decision to stay in-house and hire somebody who was brought in under Ron Wolf but worked for years and presumably learned the trade under Ted Thompson. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't know about you, but I think this was the absolute right move for the Packers at this point in time. I think the Packers' organizational structure is solid. I think Ted Thompson lost his fastball over the last few years. That's why last week when we were doing a topic on grading Ted Thompson, I I think it breaks down into the early Thompson years that I would have given him an A, and then the later Thompson years where I would have probably given him a D. I think he lost his fastball. I don't think he adapted. He had some bad drafts. And for somebody who doesn't want to go into free agency and doesn't have draft and then starts drafting badly, it is a recipe for disaster. That said, um, I, I think a lot of these people are quality people. I don't think you're not dealing with the Cleveland Browns where you really, I think, need to come in and blow up an organization. You're dealing with a team where the future is now and you have one of the best players, if not the best player in the NFL, and you need to surround him with the type of supporting cast, whether it's through the draft or whether it's through free agency, that give you an opportunity to win now. I think, and you got to say this up front, because if this breaks bad three or four years from now, then everybody's going to be saying, oh, they should have known better. Well, I'm going to go on record right now saying I think this was a good pick. You've got a guy who's in his mid-40s. You've got a guy who's been associated with the Packers for a long time. He understands the system. He presumably works well with the head coach, who I think is all in all a really, really good coach, who I hope he's here for a long time. I think this is an outstanding choice. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Are you glad that the Packers stayed in-house with this? Um, or would you have liked to have seen them blow up the organization? Would you like to have seen them try to go outside the Ron Wolf coaching tree, bring in somebody, some out-of-the-box thinking? Um, this, I, I think in some respects, it was the route of least resistance. I don't know why they hire Gouda Kunst instead of, you know, Elliot Wolf who's a lot younger, um, but but in general, I mean, I think they had a number of good choices. I hope they're able to keep Elliot Wolf as well. They could do that by giving him more money and giving him a better title or something like that. But I, I think the Packers did the right thing. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. 
again, this to me is not a franchise that is is broken. It's a franchise that had a bad year. It's a franchise that's had a couple bad years of drafting. But you, you need somebody. You need somebody to tinker as opposed to somebody to blow it all up. Paul in the North Shore. Paul, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's a great. I think it's a great pick because Russ Ball's not going to go anywhere because nobody's going to make him a GM without the player personnel experience. Right. So you and, know that. And he's 58 years old, you know, and, and never been a general right. manager before. And he's he's a he's great at what he does. So yeah, absolutely. I, right. He's, nobody's going to poach him from you, or he's not going to go elsewhere. So now you got to look at the two in-house younger guys, and I think they went with who they felt would be just a little bit better. Not that Wolf's not good, but you know maybe he'll go get his own GM job somewhere. And now you got a, a guy with great player personnel experience, and you got the finance guy because right, right, who who knows? I mean, thank, right. world. yeah, no, right. Thanks for the call. Who who again? Who who knows the Packers and knows the organization inside and out, and hopefully is a little bit more amenable to, all right, maybe we'll we'll spend a little bit of that money and maybe there, there's a sense of urgency. When, when they were doing the, and I, I've, I've met Mark Murphy on a couple occasions, I, my hope was that when they were, when, when they were doing these interviews, it wasn't, hey, give me your five-year plan for getting the Packers back to the Super Bowl. Because I don't know if Aaron Rodgers has five years. You hope so, but you don't know. He's going to be 34 or is 34. I mean, you, the, for the Packers, the, the future is now. And you look at all these different years where they were successful, but they squandered the ability to get back to the Super Bowl. If I'm, the, if I'm Murphy, I'm saying, okay, tell me what you are going to do now. Tell me, you know, where the players are going to come from because we not only want to be back in the playoffs next year, we want to be a Super Bowl contender. How are you going to build the defense? Those type of things. And I think you didn't need, you did not need to blow up the franchise. You needed to do, I think, what they did. Robert in Milwaukee. Robert, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, how you doing? Good. Uh, uh, good to be on your show. Hey, listen, it seems to me that the Packers are being a little unorganized about this. Um, if Mike McCarthy doesn't have to report to the new GM, then if everybody's reporting to Mark Murphy, then they really don't have a GM, and McCarthy is running everything. Well, not no, because McCarthy's not going to do player personnel. I mean, my understanding is the general manager, he's going to be the one that's going to be putting together the lineup. He decides who are the 53 players that ultimately make the team. Now, obviously, the coach has input in that, but, I mean, he's going to be in charge of player personnel. The coach is going to be in charge of coaching, and the finance guy is going to be in charge of the contracts, and they all report to Murphy. Um, so. But it seems to me that under the structure that you, that you just – Explain right. that McCarthy doesn't have to run anything by the new GM. And the only thing he has to do is go to Mark Murphy and say, "Well, yes. I don't want this player or that player." If there's a if there's a player personnel issue, they're gonna both run to Mark Murphy instead of the coach working with the GM. Well, I mean, that, Mark I guess Murphy shouldn't be that hands on. Everybody shouldn't be reporting to him as far as player personnel and who's on the roster and who's doing what. Well, I, I mean, here, here's what Robert. Thanks. For, I mean, here's what I, I think. I mean, I, I think. Now, I guess it, it depends on how this works in in reality. But if I'm Mark Murphy and I want this to work, you got to make it really clear. You say to the coach, Mike McCarthy, say, Mike, okay, the general manager is responsible for picking the roster. You know, you got to work with him. Obviously, I mean, obviously, the coach has input. The coach sits down and says, "Okay, these are the people. I'm I'm on the practice field. These are the guys I think are working and not." But I mean, it's got to be set up if it's going to work that McCarthy, 
you know, is responsible for coaching, and he's held accountable for that. Um, and the, the player personnel guy, the general manager, is responsible for the team. Now, you're right, I guess, if this is – if if you're not going to give the general manager the authority to do that, then you should have just made Mike Murphy the general manager. But I don't think that's going to be how the structure is. And if I'm the president, if I'm Mark Murphy, I'm saying if the coach is banging on my door complaining that hey, I don't like this, the, I don't like the backup guard they're getting me. Uh, if I'm if I'm Mark Murphy, I'm saying, coach, you got to go talk to the general manager. I, I'm not going to get involved in this. Here's why I think they they did this because you you have. And this is one of the things that happens when when you're in house. You've got McCarthy, who's been in a position of of authority, and now you're essentially taking somebody who was. And I, I understand they work for the general manager, but you know you're taking Guda Kunst, and you're you know you're you're. It's like when you, when you take somebody that. He didn't directly work for McCarthy, but somebody who was arguably lower down in the pecking order than McCarthy was, and you elevate him. And I think what they're trying to do is figure out a way to balance this all out. You want to keep Russ Ball, the contract guy. Good. You give him a raise. You give him a new title. Fine. And you let him have his own little world. You say to Coach McCarthy, hey, I think you're doing a really good job. I want you to just concentrate on coaching the team, but I'm not going to take this guy who, you know, essentially worked for you in a way, um, and now he's over top of you. You just report to me if you've got problems. But I think they all get along. Now, obviously, if something happens and they start not getting along, well, then you've got an issue. Hopefully, Mark Murphy is going to be a good enough administrator to um, deal with that. Deb in West Bend. Deb, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Deb. Um, I don't think they did enough cleaning house. I really think they should get rid of McCarthy. He's been there 12 years. Yeah. That's quite a long time for a coach to be with the team. He's not He's not doing anything right now. And for him to sign a one-year contract, I don't know where that came from. And uh, they they should be good. I mean, if we have to go through more to, to get rid of some of these people, uh, whether it be Clay Matthews or whoever, they're, they're, it's just, Start from scratch with some of this stuff. Well, but, but, people... but keep in mind, Deb, you, you, you say start from scratch. You, you've got a limited, first of all, okay, this, this, this team underperformed. It was seven and nine. But you have a team that has won one Super Bowl and has been to the playoffs eight years in a row. I'm not sure that there's any other team other than New England who had done that. Um, McCarthy has, among active coaches, the second or third best winning, you know, greatest winning record. Who's out there that you're going to get that's necessarily going to be able to come in and do a better job? Well, I, you know, I, I just, uh, I just feel that, uh, a lot of times these, these, when we've gone to the playoffs, it's been given to us. They mm-hmm. didn't really earn it. They've been given it to us. Well, as I'm, far as how- well, okay, well, thanks. I mean, I guess I, I, I just, I mean, he's, he's got, among, among active coaches, there might be one, maybe two that have a better record than McCarthy, maybe just one. I, I you know, other than Bill Belichick. I mean, I, I guess I continue to be a Mike McCarthy fan, um, and I, I don't, I mean, the idea of look if this team had been three and fourteen, if this team was the Bears for the last several years, well, then you blow it up and start over again. I mean, I don't. I guess I just don't know if you're going to say, okay, we'll get rid of Mike McCarthy. Well, tell me who's going to do a better job and tell me who has a better track record. I don't think McCarthy is the problem. I honestly think that the the players that he's gotten over the last few years have not been good enough. I don't necessarily think Dom Capers was the problem. I think a lot of times, you know, you can only, you know, you know, it's tough to make chicken salad out of chicken, you know what. And I, I think... 
I mean, Ted Thompson, I really do think, lost his fastball in the last few years. I, I do think it's time for a change because the players that Capers had just weren't understanding the system or weren't responding. But I don't think Mark McCarthy's the problem. And I wouldn't be surprised if you give him a little – you improve the quality of the players just a little bit. You draft a couple people who can perform. You pick a quality free agent or two. I'm not – then the Packers are back in the playoff, and they're right back in the hunt for the Super Bowl. I think this was a good pick. I'm on record as saying that, and you can call up a year or two from now if it all goes to you-know-where and say, Jeff, we told you so, and Deb, I invite you to do that. I told you they should have gotten rid of Mike McCarthy. Um, I just I don't think it's that time yet. 1249, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1253, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, the Packers press conference is coming up at 1 o'clock. We're going to do big story number three right after that. It involves the latest tweet storm. But this is something, you know, you knew this was going to happen. The Red Cross was getting all sorts of flack last week. The mayor was upset when they said, hey, you know, we're we're not going to send volunteers into some of these zip code areas. And the unspoken reason was because they have trouble finding um They have trouble finding volunteers who will go into some of these high-crime areas. But the Red Cross gets all this heat about that. But they said, hey, even if we weren't going to send people in, now they've rescinded that policy, don't worry, we're still going to help people. So last week, there's this press conference, and this woman shows up, a couple family members, a lawyer that's there, a community activist, and they denounce the Red Cross. They say, hey, you know, that the Red Cross says they're going to help, but they didn't help her. She lost her house in a fire, and she got nothing from the Red Cross. Here's how Channel 58 reported it. A local family says the Red Cross wouldn't help them after a fire because they lived in one of 10 zip codes in the city. The organization was no longer going on scene to help. But now the Red Cross says that family did get help. Yesterday, the Red Cross reversed its controversial policy, but this family says no one showed up to the home on 21st an hour back on December 28th. An attorney for the family filed a federal complaint asking the Civil Rights Division of the U.S. Department of Justice to look into it. We're asking for Red Cross at the scene of the fire, and um, they were pretty much like, uh, they, first they told us for a while they were coming, they were coming, and... They never did that. Eventually, uh, they told us to come back to the police station and Red Cross would come to meet us. Um, we went to the police station. We sat around. We waited. Eventually, we were told that we should just go to them. Um, we went there, and the only information they can give us was to go seek help from a community advocate or to call 211 for, for further uh, information. Okay, so what happens, that was 58's reporting, but other news stations, everybody shows up. They put this woman on TV. Her community activist is with her. The lawyer's with her. We're filing a civil rights complaint against the Red Cross. Oh, this is terrible. They wouldn't help this lady. Her name is Latressa Turner. She is a lying sack of beans. You knew something was wrong with this story early on because the Red Cross comes out and says, hey, look, we, we've, we've got records. We gave her money. She, you know, she came to us, and, and here we've got these vouchers. Even after that, at least initially, she doesn't back off on her statements, and some of the people supporting her don't back off on her statements. They start a GoFundMe campaign on Facebook. Uh, about $1,200 was raised. Red Cross, meanwhile, is saying, we have receipts for what we gave her. And now Latressa Turner saying, here's what she says. Well, okay, I lied. People came to me and said to me that the Red Cross didn't help them before and just try to lie and say I didn't receive the money. I didn't see how far that was going to go, but I didn't know it was going to get this far. What? I I mean, okay, 
I, I've decided to lie. I got this money. The Red Cross helped me, and I'm going to go on TV, and I'm going to say that they didn't because I want to make them look bad. Well, I've got a couple questions here. First of all, you know, who was it? Let's name some names. Who were the people that came to her and said to lie? What did the community activist, what did the lawyer know? You know, is there some duty to do some due diligence before you allow somebody like this to go on television and trash the reputation of the Red Cross? Because some people will see the story, but you know what? Some people will understand this woman was a lying sack of beans, but other people will look at it, and they're not going to hear the follow-up. They're just going to say, oh, that evil, racist Red Cross, they, they didn't go in. They didn't help this poor woman of color. They, they were really redlining. And the, the truth of the matter is she is a liar. Uh, the media in this town guppied in on this story. Now, immediately, I mean, they did report the, the Red Cross's story here. Um, and again, I don't know what the action is. I, I don't know that there's anything that the Red Cross can really do. But for anybody who saw this story, the Milwaukee woman who accused the American Red Cross of not helping her after her house caught fire is a liar. It's 1257. This is Jeff Wagner. 141, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, number of people weighing in on our text line. Um, been a fan since 1969. What a refreshing change. Yeah, I think, I, I actually, I think it was a very, very good introduction the new Packers general manager has to the Packers fan base. And I, the other thing I think was interesting is I think he's made it very clear that he intends to be more accessible to the fans via the media than perhaps his predecessor was. I mean, I, I understand why. You know, people, especially in certain positions, you know, you don't like to be second-guessed by the media and you view the media as an annoyance. And I think many times that the media is, in fact, an annoyance. But stonewalling them and making the job more difficult, that's frustrating as well. And you have to be able to find a happy balance. And I don't think Ted Thompson – I think Ted Thompson – lost that over the years so you, know, you can you can be forthcoming with uh, the way you communicate as a general rule with the public is through the the media and I, I understand that you don't want to be giving away company secrets but at the same time there's ways to work everything out and i think this new guy is going to be very very good speaking of communicating with the general public and this is big story number three uh president trump and this is no secret. President Trump has decided to use Twitter as a way to carry on his feud with the mainstream media, to go above, around, over, under the mainstream media and communicate to the masses. His early morning tweets have also been some of the things that have been the most controversial about his administration. And I would argue have have derailed some initiatives because it, it's just gotten the entire administration off message because of some of the tweets. Now, I know that there are some people out there who think this is brilliant. This is a a, a timed-out and a well-thought-out strategy. Here, I'm getting beat up on this thing, so here, I'm going to send out this tweet, and I know everybody's going to follow that tweet, and you know th- this will be what they talk about for two or three days. Some people think it's part of a brilliant strategy. I, I, I tend not to. I, I think the president is thin-skinned. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think he's thin-skinned. He's just unable to let stuff go, and I think he uses Twitter as his way of lashing out. All right, so here is the backdrop. Over the weekend, the president is at Camp David with a number of people from the administration, Republican leaders. So they're they're at Camp David. Um, One of the big stories last week was, of course, this book, Fire and Fury, which came out, which has a very unflattering 
portrait of the president and the campaign and people in the administration, and it's getting all the, this different attention. Steve Bannon, of course, the former advisor to President Trump, the, the Breitbart guy, he's now finds himself on the outside looking in for some very, very controversial things he had to say about President Trump. Well, in any event, while at Camp David, Saturday morning, uh, President Trump takes to Twitter again and sends out a series of tweets. Um, here are the ones that are getting the attention. He, this is what he tweets starting at 7.19 a.m. Eastern Time. So this is like 6.20 in the morning, our time. Now that the Russian collusion, after one year of intense study, has been proven to be a total hoax on the American public, the Democrats and their lapdogs, the fake news mainstream media, are taking out the old Ronald Reagan playbook and screaming mental stability and intelligence. He then sends out another tweet. Actually, throughout my life, my two greatest assets have been mental stability and being, like, really smart. Crooked Hillary Clinton also played these cards very hard and, as everyone knows, went down in flames. Then another tweet. I went from very capital very successful businessman to top tv star to president of the united states on my first try i think that would qualify as not smart but genius and a very stable genius at that so you have the president of the united states saying i am i am not just despite all these things that you're hearing and the stuff that might be out there in these books and stuff that the truth of the matter is that um I have I'm mentally stable and I am like really smart. Um, I went from very successful businessman to top TV star to president of the United States. I think that would qualify as not smart but genius, a very stable genius at that. Okay, four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. I want to have an open ended conversation here. Your reaction. To those three tweets from the president on Saturday morning, was it odd? Was it an appropriate response given the content and what had been the dialogue after this book came out last week? Was it over the top? Was it paranoid? Was it appropriate? Just right? Too strong? Nuts? Whatever. I'm not sure that I've ever seen a tweet or a comment by a leader of the free world, the leader of the free world saying, oh, by the way, I'm not nuts. I'm, I'm very stable and I, I'm a genius and I'm really successful. Your reaction to those series of tweets, did the president help himself or hurt himself? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 147. This is Jeff Wagner. 150, Jeff Wagner, WTM. Jeff, yeah, let's start with some of the things on our text line. Already the most visible man in the world. The guy's the president, for God's sakes. Uh, he needs to, and he needs to draw extra attention to himself. I don't get it. Uh, let's see. That's what all crazy people say. Crazy people don't know that they're crazy. Um, another text. I believe that very rarely does a genius publicly call himself one. Please stay off Twitter, Mr. President. You are embarrassing the country. Um, well, there's that. Another text. If you're really, a, if you really are a genius, do you have to 
tell people of that. Well, um, this president feels one of that. Let's see. Oh, my God, he sounds too unstable. He sounds so unstable based on some of these responses. Okay, 414-799-1620. These are the tweets that the president sends out. And obviously he's stung by this book that's out there that quotes, purports to quote people close to him as saying we think he's unstable and he's unsuitable and he's not that smart. He says, hey, I'm a genius and um, these are my different accomplishments, and I'm very stable. Let's start with Daryl and Kenosha. Daryl, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello, sir. What um, do you think? Real quick, all three statements are true, and it's normally good to practice humility. However, if they continually are bombarding a person with negativity and they state their accomplishments, it's like when we have work, we have to write our own self-review before we get one. I find it difficult. It's hard to say good things about yourself, even mm-hmm. though they're true. Right. I write it in third person, but right. everything he said is true. I so mean, you're, you're saying uh, no brag. What, what do they always say? No brag, just fact, huh? Right. And, but, you know, if you're going to keep saying he's this, he's that, you know, and it's all negative, negative. So he's just saying, really? All right, look at my track record. I, and he is successful. And oh. He's got a really hot wife, and he's president of the United <laughs> States, and he's rich. And uh, I don't know what guy would want to trade places with him, oh, well, except for like eight million liberals. But. Well, I, I, t- I mean, I guess if if I had his money, I, I think I'm not sure I'd want to be the president of the United States. I think I might be hanging out playing golf even more than he does. Uh, he, he claims he's a stable, and and you know, you're. I mean, objectively. You know what he says? He says, I went from a very successful businessman, I think he, he clearly was, to a top TV star, to the President of the United States on his first try. Um, I think I would qualify that as not smart, but a genius. I don't know that that necessarily plays into intelligence, but it's it's clearly successful and a very stable genius out of that. Here's the, my, I, I, have, I have problems with the doing this. See, I think he just calls attention to this stuff. I, I think by sending out these tweets, he, he shows who cares what this book really says. I mean, that's the bottom. Who cares what this book says? But by sending out these tweets, he, he, he shows that clearly it bothered him. Sarah in Milwaukee. Sarah, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Hi, Sarah. Um, I think he lacks a lot of integrity. I think he's having very serious mental um, illness problems. And that's just demonstrating it. But I don't think his supporters care. Uh, no. We say you say demonstrating like mental illness. What do you mean by oh, that? I, I think if you listen to him from twenty years ago and you compare him to now, um, well, maybe this is not mental illness, but um, his vocabulary has really become much more narrow. Hmm. Um. Also, the fact that he's calling to attention the how how smart he is. I mean, if you're really smart, you don't do that. Well, yeah, mo- most right, mo- most people. Yeah, that's. I, I, I mean, thanks for calling. I, I would say this about Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan is this, and I've spent time with him over the years. Paul Ryan is the smartest guy in the room on, on many occasions, and he's also really good at not letting you know that he's the smartest guy in the room. Because, you know, you, you don't necessarily like the smartest guy in the room. Um, Ryan is, is just great at that. And that that's, a, that's a talent that clearly, but I mean, you know, President Trump is always, before he became president, he had this kind of like bigger than life persona, love him or hate him, and that persona has not changed at all. Steve in Green Bay. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Hi, Steve. As I was telling your screener, I'm kind, I'm kind of torn. You know, I... 
I wish at times he wouldn't do this, but I can kind of feel for him. Um, and maybe you got to be above that when you're the president, but to have people just patently lie about you and make comments yeah. about your family. Yeah. I mean, I think I'd be in the same point. I'd stand up. I might not do it as boastfully or whatever, but, but I'd take my shots. Right. Well, and that's, I mean, I guess that's, I mean, that's part of the fact of this out there. I, I, I guess here's why, here's why if I, I think he makes a mistake. First of all, it, it does, it does sound just so incredibly arrogant. You know, it, it just does when you do that. And I think it's, I, I think again, it's kind of off-putting to a lot of people, um, including people who might be supporters. Uh, the other thing is, it, it just, it shows that people are getting under your skin. And I think, you know, candidly, I think he'd be a lot better off if he was able to at least avoid that. All right, I want to switch gears. But they're, you know, speaking about arrogant, the guy that wrote this book, he's giving interviews with the BBC saying he's going to be the guy. This book will bring down the Trump presidency. We're going to talk about that next. It's 156. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 207. This is Jeff Wagner. Coming up in 10 minutes, UW-Madison apparently doesn't think there's any problem with its professors sleeping with their students. Huh. What could go wrong with that in 2018? We'll discuss that in about 10 minutes. But I I do want to just sort of bootstrap on something we were talking about at the end of the last hour. Uh, President Trump, over the weekend, sending out these these tweets that I just, I I just, they're, they're, you know, eye rolling type of tweets. And, and again, you know, it, it is the truth. Hey, I'm, I, I'm, I consider myself to be a genius. I'm very, very stable. I was incredibly successful. I did this, that, or the other thing. And I guess I just, it is his, it is need, it is his need to respond to everything that I, I find to be, I think, kind of frustrating. I mean, yes, he's incredibly successful, but you just, Generally speaking, people that are incredibly successful don't send out tweets talking about how successful they are or how stable they are. I think it just undermines his agenda. I understand some people love it and other people just kind of roll their eyes. But but the flip side of this is um, he's not the only sort of egoist that, that is around. Um, the, the thing that's created the latest controversy is this, this book by, by Michael Wolf that has – all the, this contrary, all this you know information, most of which is unflattering. Wolf himself, who is a, a muckraker extraordinaire, who up until this book, his greatest accomplishment was probably he was well known for getting into fights and getting thrown out of restaurants in New York. So Wolf comes out with this book, now a best-selling book, and he, he quotes all sorts of people um, saying bad things about the president. Wolf himself acknowledges that there's a lot of stuff in this book that he thinks is false. He he just he reported it without a filter. You know, he would interview people. And he said, "Now I knew that sometimes I people I thought they were lying to me, but they said these things, and I was going to put it anyways. And sometimes I'd have two people that would tell me completely different stories of what went on at the same meeting, but I'd put those in and let people decide. So it, it's." It is a, a book of, of questionable, I, I think, questionable lineage. But nonetheless, the, the thing that strikes me as bizarre, and I said this last week, is that the president would have allowed this guy, whose reputation was well known, to sit on a sofa in the West Wing once a week for the better part of a year. It's like, really? I mean, and, and then just like stop people as they're coming out of the Oval Office or stop people as they're going into the West Wing and ask them for comments. And interestingly enough, I don't think that there's anybody who's quoted in the book who's said that they've been misquoted. Um, you know, Steve Bannon trying to walk back a couple things, but even I think he acknowledges that he said a lot of the stuff he said. And it, to me, it's just... 
it's absolutely bizarre that you'd have a White House that is so out of control that you'd allow not not an official biographer, but just some muckraking journalist to just sit on the couch and grab people as they're going into and out of meetings in the West Wing. Just just bizarre to me, and so you shouldn't be surprised that this happens. Well, anyhow, this, this Michael Wolf is clearly enjoying his 15 minutes of fame as as well. Um, he's doing an interview, and I'm looking with this at this right now, an interview with BBC Radio over the weekend. And he's talking to some host on BBC. The guy's name is um, Nick Robinson. And, and here's what he says. And here's what, here's what Robinson says. Robinson says, now all of this is fascinating. It's an insight. It's gossip, some of it. It may be not enough to stop him from being president, whereas the allegations about Russia may be. Do you believe that anything in this book will actually change the chances of the allegations of collusion with Russia being found to be true and therefore leading to the impeachment of the president? So that's what they ask the author of this book. Here's what what Wolf says. You know, I think one of the interesting effects of this book so far is a very clear emperor has no clothes effect. That the story that I have told seems to present this presidency in such a way that it says he can't do his job. The emperor has no clothes. Suddenly, everywhere, people are going, oh, my God, it's true he has no clothes. That's the background to the perception and the understanding that this will finally end this. This will finally end this presidency. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, again, I, I think there's... Things that you can criticize the president feeling his need to send out tweets saying, well, I, I'm, I'm a genius and I'm really stable and I'm incredibly successful. All right. So that's the president saying that here. You now have the author of the book doing interviews saying that that he he thinks his book is going to finally end the Trump presidency. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet mortgage talk or text line. All right. A lot of people are perhaps discussing, you know, the president's temperament and whether he is temperamentally suited to do the job that he was elected to. Having said that, if you want to talk about somebody, in my opinion at least, that's really nuts, I mean just bona fide, full tilt, bonkers, bat crap crazy, the author of this book, if he really thinks that his book is going to end the Trump presidency. I'm the one that's pulled back the lid on this. I have exposed the emperors having new clothes. All right, he's going to sell some books. I get it. Um, there's the gossipy nature of this. I have not read the book yet. At some point in time, I probably will. Um, he's going to sell a lot of books. He's going to make a lot of money. But is this book going to end the Trump presidency? And what does it say about the guy that wrote it if he seriously thinks it is? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't know. I think the Trump presidency, candidly, if it ends before a four-year term, it's going to be because the president decides he's had enough of this and he, he's ready to, to go back and to live a more normal life. He's going to say, I've accomplished everything. Who needs this aggravation? But to think that this book is going to end the presidency, I think, is absolutely absurd. This book will sell some books, and then 
a month from now, it's going to be on the the you know half price book list as well as they try to get rid of the copies. Flash in the pan. This book is going to have no effect on the Trump presidency, and the fact that the author seems to think it tells me that this author's got some mental illness problems as well. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this book going to lead to the demise of the Trump presidency? I think not. What do you think? We discuss next. It's 214. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 217, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Chris in Illinois. Hi, Chris. You're on WTMJ. Uh, hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Sure. I'm uh, just a tad confused uh, concerning this uh, Wolf book. Um, I think if I re- remember right, the statement you made before the break was that he was going to demonstrate evidence of collusion with the Trump campaign, and that's all we've heard for the last year was there was collusion with the Trump campaign as far as taking Hillary well, down. And right, Well, that, that was the, que- the, 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 the setup was that the, the radio interviewer asked him, Hey, um, you know, do you think your book is going to lead to new insights or new investigation into collusion? And then the author took it the next step, and he wasn't talking about the collusion. The author said, "I think this is going to be the end of the presidency. We've exposed the emperor as having new clothes, no clothes, whatever that meant." Yeah. Okay. So my my question is then, according to the book, another conclusion was that Trump didn't want to win the election. Mm-hmm. Right. And the, and the people around him did, yeah. Melania was Melania was crying and all this other stuff. So, why would Trump? I suppose I suppose this maybe is another evidence that he's not. Why would Trump collude with the Russians to win an election that he didn't <laughs> want to win? Yeah, I I don't. I mean, I got to tell you, Chris. I I can take the call. I I continue to believe that this Trump Russia thing is a nothing burger. And I understand the people that hate President Trump don't like to hear that. I just I I, I just don't. I don't see that. I think this is kind of this media obsession that is out there. I think some of the stuff they might have done was, was kind of heavy-handed, but it's I, I, I think this is ultimately going to go nowhere as it relates to President Trump and, and the campaign. Now, I, I guess I could be shown to be wrong. I do think that uh, Bob Mueller oh, oh, owes it to the country to to get stuff done, I would say poop or get off the pot. The idea that these investigations go on forever, that I think is is a huge problem. But this notion that, okay, this book is going to bring down the presidency, I come on. I mean, the truth of the matter is there's going to be some other scandal book that comes out, you know, two weeks from now or a month from now, and that's going to be what people are talking about. And somebody just texted me and said, you know, come December when you're looking back at the biggest stories of the year, this is going to be an afterthought. It will be a trivia question. Hey, who wrote that book? that created all the the kind of firestorm at all. No, I mean, I think the truth of the matter is that President Trump, um, at least for, I I don't see impeachment on the horizon. I I don't know if he wants to run for re-election, but I think, um, love him or hate him, I think he's going to be around for the next few years unless he decides that he wants to go back to Florida and just leave all this fun behind. It is 2.20 when we come back next. UW-Madison thinks it's okay for professors to have sex with their students. Hmm. We'll discuss. Stick around. It's 224. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay. I, um, when I was in college, I had a, I had a professor who I was actually very, very close to. We don't need to go into the details, but nice guy. 
Um, I had known him before I went to that particular college. Nice guy. Um, he was married, liked his wife. Uh, during my freshman year at college, the, oh gosh, was it the freshman? It might have been during the sophomore year. I, I kind of, it all blurred. It might have been during my sophomore year at college. Um, my, eh, no, it's the freshman year, I think. The, my professor, my friend, um, started sleeping with one of his students. Um, and it created all sorts of problems. It, it even I'm 18 years old at the time, and I'm thinking, eh, I don't think this is going to end well. It was compounded by the fact that the student he was sleeping with, her dad was a big wig professor at the same university, and I knew that this this was not once this got out, this was not going to go over well, and, and ultimately, it didn't. Now the interesting follow-up story to that though is that you know ultimately my friend the professor he he ended up leaving or losing I don't know exactly how it all ended I honestly don't remember but he, he left the university but he and the gal um they got married and they are married to this day so I mean it was it was like one of these things that was started in kind of a weird sort of context and was I think most of us felt at the time that it was awkward and it was inappropriate, but you know, you know, they went on and, and had what I think they, they're still married to this day, like I say. But it was it was a bad it was a, just a bad idea. But at the same time, I mean, I also understand that people you you meet people, you know, affairs of the heart are different to are difficult to regulate. But this was a professor sleeping with a student involved in a relationship with a student. Now again. Perhaps all's well that ends well, but it was an awkward time. I bring this up because there was a story in the Madison paper the other day. A year after the University of Wisconsin System Board of Regents adopted a policy prohibiting professors from entering into romantic or sexual relationships with their students, such relationships are still permitted at UW-Madison. Um, the spokesperson says there's been much progress on developing campus procedures to implement the system policy. Um, there's been no hold up. We're still working diligently on this, but they still don't have a policy um, yet as to so-called consensual relationships between professors and their students. Now, at many universities across the country, the, there, there's a real simple rule, like there's a rule for lawyers. Rule for lawyers is you sleep with one of your clients and you're going to get disbarred. And it's, it's pretty much as close to a black letter rule as possible. At many universities across the country, the rule is, is very, very simple. It is never, ever acceptable for a professor to have a sexual relationship with a student at the university regardless, regardless of whether or not the student is in that professor's classes. Um, the idea, again, being the fact that you've got a professor who, an instructor, you know, who has, you know, added abilities and added powers and stuff. Um, you know, the, the rule is, it's just, at many schools, it's just not going to happen. Now, I, I understand that you do have this consensual thing. We're not talking about high school kids having relationships with their teachers because presumably by the time you get to college, you are of an age of majority. And I also understand that people, you know, can meet each other. But um, I got to tell you, I mean, I, I think when it comes to universities, 
Uh, the simple rule should be faculty members should never, never, never ever engage in romantic relationship with students, even when their students are not in their class, because, you know, there there's a a power difference. There's a relationship. There's an authority figure. If you're an instructor, you are an authority figure. And to me, you should keep your hands off students. All right. For, but that's not the rule right now at UW-Madison. All right. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Maybe you, like me, I mean, again, I, I remember back in college and I knew these people very well. They ended up having this torrid affair um, she was not married. Um, he was broke up the broke up the marriage. But they go on and they've had a successful marriage for you know decades. All right, you do meet people. You are adults. Should there be a rule which says in the UW system or in UW Madison particularly, if you are an instructor, if you are a professor, you should not be having relationships. You should not be engaged in a sexual relationship consensual consent notwithstanding with somebody who is a student 414-799-1620 that's my that's the acunet mortgage talk and text line and i have to tell you i also think from the perspective of a parent um i do not have children myself but if i sent my you know daughter off to uw madison for example and you know after four months i find out that she is sleeping with, you know, one of her professors or one of the professors there, I'm not going to be happy with her, but I'm really not going to be happy with him. 414-799-1620. Should professors, if there's consent, be allowed to have relationships with their students? I think this is, and at UW-Madison, it shouldn't take them a year or two years to develop a policy. The policy should be real simple. Hands off the students. 236, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, Mike in Milwaukee. Hi, Mike. Hi. How's it going? Good. What do you think? Okay, UW doesn't yet have a policy, UW-Madison, saying that it's against the rules for professors to sleep with students. Well, I think it'd be a good idea if they did, not because uh, consensual sex between a student and a professor, there's nothing morally wrong with it or ethically wrong with it, but you are assuming that it's consensual. So if consent comes into question, you know, that could be, you know, uh, a huge problem for the university. So pragmatically speaking, if they had a policy that says it's not allowed, it's real easy for the university to just wipe their hands clean. Otherwise, any time a student says that there wasn't consent, that the power structure did come into play, then the university needs to act as, you know, like some form of police and determine whether or not a line was crossed. Well, can you think of a situation where it would ever be appropriate, though? I mean, for you, you've got adult professors, you've got, okay, let, let's take this situation, which is probably the most common thing, where you've got a, a male professor and you've got a female student. You've got an 18- or 19-year-old, and I understand that's past the age of majority, but she, she's a she's a student at the university. I guess I'm having trouble thinking of a situation where it would ever be appropriate for that professor, even if he's not, even if she's not taking classes from him, she's a student, he's a teacher, what are they doing? Well, I mean, I don't know. I Take a subject, say psychology, right? And you have a female student who's a psychology major. She's really passionate about psychology, as is her professor, and she's an excellent student. So, like, 
passing the class, getting a good grade, that's not an issue. If they're both, they both have a lot in common, you know, they could fall in love. Mm-hmm. I, well, I mean, it's like, possible. No, it, well, it's possible. That's why I started off the story. I mean, that, that this couple that I knew very, very well back in the day, they fell in love. I would have never predicted it, but they stayed. They, you know, they've been married for decades. Um, so obviously, it worked out. Now, thanks to call, but but it created all these different problems, and it's. I mean, it, it creates issues with. It's it's why offices have policies where you know you don't you can't have supervisors in relationships with uh, their subordinates because it creates all sorts of issues. Uh, if the relationship breaks bad, it creates an issue, but it also creates an issue with other employees, people who are sitting there saying, well, all right, you know, so-and-so sleeping with the boss and, you know, she's or he or she is getting, you know, special treatment because they're doing that. There's a different set of rules. You know, we can't... Uh, we can't be as candid as we would otherwise be when so and so is there because you know we know this is going to be pillow talk with the boss it, it it's why companies have all sorts of policies like that but at the same time recognizing that workplaces is where people do in fact you know meet you know their their significant others um so th- there's always that balancing but to me you know just like with lawyers like i said earlier the, i mean the rule is pretty much a black letter rule the rule is you you know you you don't you don't have relationships. You don't pursue clients, period. Um, I, I think that's a wise rule. And I, I think just to me, black letter rules, without having to like do all these nuances, okay, who's the student? What's the relationship? How does this you know, affect it? Talk to the department head. Hey, it, it's just, I think it's just kind of simple. And the simple thing is if you're going to be a, an instructor or a professor at a university, just you know, keep your hands off the, the, keep your hands off the kids. I think it all works better that way. It's saying it is 2:40. When we come back, we got a lot of stuff before the end of the program. Milwaukee continues its war on retailers, and George Stephanopoulos. Good morning, America. Would you miss him if he was gone? Stick around. It's 2:40. This is Jeff Wagner. 2:43. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay. The, the upside through producing the show or downside of that topic is now. I, I started wondering. Whatever, I, it's been years since I've had any contact with the professor and his wife. Now, now I'm starting to wonder what happened to them. So that, I get a half hour tonight. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend a half hour of my life trying to figure out via the Internet, you know, what's, what's still going on there. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It is about time. You will remember a couple weeks ago, um, a couple aldermen came out with this proposal that they wanted to go after retailers in Milwaukee whose shopping carts were being stolen. Shopping carts cost several hundred dollars. And you have people who take the shopping carts off the lots, off the premises of the Walmarts or the pick and save or, or whatever. They steal the shopping carts, partly because in some cases you've got homeless people who want to have the shopping carts to push their stuff around in. In some cases, there's people that steal the shopping carts and they um, then resell them for the square, this, the metal. Other people, they're just vandals. They, they take the shopping carts. And what they find is, you know, um, sometimes these shopping carts end up abandoned in alleys or abandoned on streets or things like that. Well, a couple aldermen, and this again reflects 
the thinking that goes on in, in City Hall. A couple aldermen become concerned with, gee, the, the, the shopping carts are, are a blight. People are stealing the shopping carts and they're leaving them on the city and, and then, you know, it, it's a mess. So what is their answer? Is their answer to go after the thieves? No, no, no. The answer is to try to penalize the stores. And one of the ideas that is now emerging is a requirement that essentially um, shopping carts, any any one of these businesses, like a Target store or a pick and save or whatever, they would be required under a new ordinance to add anti-theft systems to the shopping carts. Um, and the anti-theft things, apparently there's a couple different things, but, but essentially it's an electronic electronic device, which when you take the shopping cart, it kind of works like the, the dog collars work, you know, the invisible fence. You know, the dog goes to the invisible fence and tries to go through and they get a shock. What these, these anti-theft devices do is they disable when they work. You know, you take the shopping cart off the premises. You you go through the invisible fence, and what they do is they, like, lock up the wheels. That That's the thinking on this. The problem is that they... They don't work a lot. They don't work well. And on top of that, they're expensive to put in. And on top of that, a lot of times the bad guys, they know how to disable these things. I mean, it's not exactly like you're sending somebody to the moon. They know how to disable these. So a lot of times it just it doesn't work. This new ordinance, though, that they're out there talking about would now penalize stores. If you do not install anti-theft systems, you would be facing a fine of somewhere between $500 to $1,000 per unprotected shopping cart after um, two retrievals of abandoned carts by the city. So in other words, the city finds two of your carts. The first two are free. After that, you're looking at a fine of somewhere between $500 and $1,000 for somebody who has stole your shopping cart. Now, originally, this was going to go through really, really quickly. A couple aldermen put the brakes on this, and now a number of area businesses are standing up, and they're saying, are, are you are you crazy? I mean, we're the victims here. Somebody steals our stuff. And you're telling us that we're going to be penalized for not, I don't know, unless we put on these expensive systems that may or may not work? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think this is absolutely ridiculous. And I say that understanding the word ridiculous. You know, the if... If I'm a merchant in the city of Milwaukee, God knows I've got enough problems that I'm already dealing with. If I'm trying to run a business and I've got shopping carts that are there as a courtesy and people are stealing my shopping carts, I'm the one that is being victimized. What is the city of Milwaukee doing saying, all right, we're going to make you put this in, and if you don't, we're going to fine you? Maybe they should be concentrating on trying to catch and prosecute the people that are stealing the shopping carts in the first place. Let's start with Dave downtown. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it just boils down to, is everywhere you go going to be, like, on lockdown? I mean, I get that Target, Walmart, you're going to hit the people who have deep pockets, but what do you do with the family dollar? What do you do with the Salvation Army? What do you do with the goodwill? I mean, you're mm-hmm. just going to be passing these things along to the consumer. Oh, I mean, oh yeah. Oh, well, I mean, exactly, right. That That's a good – or – or there, there are already, Dave, some grocery stores in Milwaukee that, in order to, t- in order to take a shopping cart, 
you you've essentially got to go through a strip search. You have to give them a driver's license, you know, and then you use the shopping cart and then you get the driver's license back. I mean, really, who wants to be standing in line having to show a driver's license to get a shopping cart? I mean, really what the police should do is if you're walking down the street with it, obviously, and you've got 54 cans in it and the side of uh, aluminum siding in a pipe. I mean, obviously, you, you weren't at the family dollar. You were just, you know, whatever. You're using it for your own uh, resources. And they should, police should be allowed to confiscate the cart and, you know, throw the police van and take it back. I know we don't have those kind of resources. But it should be confiscated from the person who took it, and they should be given the fine for theft. Yeah, exactly. Go after the people that are creating the problem. No, thanks for the call. Now, I have a text here saying an ID should be required for shopping carts. Really? I mean, really? Have we really gotten to that point where because you have a handful of people that steal these things, that every time you walk into a grocery store, Instead of just being able to grab the shopping cart and start shopping, you now have to go to the shopping cart police. You have to show a photo ID, and then you get your shopping cart. And by the way, I mean, if you want to talk, I, I mean, what are we going to do? Are we going to now discriminate? What against the pe- about the people that don't have photo IDs? Is it going to be racist? You know, is this going to be a, a, some, a war on poor people? They don't have the photo IDs, so now they're not going to be able to get the shopping carts. No, concentrate on the criminal activity, and you will be fine. It's 250. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.